the Lord. In love, he created us. In love, he came to us. In love, he died for us. In love, he makes us his own, folding us into his love, transforming us by his love, sending us out in his love. By our love, this world will know that we are his. By our love, this world will see him in us as he lives his life of love in us and through us to the glory of God. Amen. Don't you find every time we say that, it just sinks a little bit deeper into us? Well, some of you may have seen the article uh, earlier this week in the Wall Street Journal that shared about some scientists at MIT who have been seeking to bring their amazing intellect and analytical skills to bear on one of the most important conundrums in human experience. Is it possible to twist open an Oreo in such a way that you end up with equal amounts of cream on both wafers? Crystal Owens, a PhD student working with a team of other scientists at MIT, published an article in a recent issue of the journal that is called Physics of Fluids. And the article was titled On Oreology, the Fracture and Flow of Milk's Favorite Cookie. <laughs> Building on research already done at Princeton in 2016, and which is now being followed up on and verified by scholars at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, Crystal and her team first used equations to calculate the viscoelasticity of their yield stress fluid, which of course is the cream inside of the cookie, trying to determine whether there was some way to separate an Oreo with equal parts of cream on both sides. And then, they used a rheometer, which they renamed an oreometer, to twist Oreos open in all kinds of different speeds. Yep. All the cream on one side. Sometimes they tried taking five minutes to do that twist that we would do in a moment. Still, the cream ended up on one side. Other times, they, they revved that oreometer up so that it twisted open a cookie a hundred times faster than a human being can, and the cream just flew all over the place. Didn't stay on either wafer. All of which raises questions about what exactly you scholars are spending your time doing <laughs> over in the corridors and labs of Purdue University. <laughs> the results? Well, after studying more than a thousand individual Oreo cookies of all different flavors and styles, they concluded that the cream at the center of an Oreo almost always sticks to one wafer when it's twisted open, regardless of which technique you use something that some of us may be able to have told them before they went to all this trouble. <laughs> so the question that was driving them, of course, was whether you could twist an Oreo apart and get the cream evenly distributed on both sides. But the question behind the question is, so what really is the relationship between the cream and the wafer in an Oreo cookie? 
And deeper than that, if the cream is really meant to be enjoyed separately from the wafer, is there some, or uh, wouldn't they, shouldn't they just sell sleeves of Oreo wafers and tubs of Oreo cream? <laughs> and as you're so busy separating out the cream and the wafer, is there some threshold that you cross where what you have in your hand is no longer an Oreo cookie? And I suppose the question behind the question behind the question is, why in the world are we talking about Oreo cookies this morning? <laughs> well, for the past couple of months, we've been walking our way through a letter that was written by James, who is both the brother of and a follower of Jesus. This morning, we listen in as James tells his brothers and his sisters in Christ to put their reometer away to stop trying to twist apart the Christian life and separate out faith from works. When we do that, according to James, when we try to pull apart what we believe from how we live, we cross a threshold beyond which whatever it is that we still have, it is no longer the Christian life. By the way, if any of you would like to come up after the sermon and eat one of my sermon illustrations, you are welcome to. Here, I'll just uh, enticingly open the sleeve here and leave it open. After the service, yes, thank you. After the service. A lot of people see the passage that we are about to look at this morning, which is James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, as the heart of the book of James. I think that's actually been a pretty common way of looking at the book for the last 500 years or so. But I've come to believe that the section we are looking at this morning isn't the heart of the book of James. It is really an aside that James makes on his way to his main point. It is a really, really important aside, but it is an aside nonetheless. James' main point is found just around the corner, right at the center of the book, where we often find it in an ancient document, in chapter 3, where he contrasts two ways of living out our Christian faith. One that leaves God out of the picture, and the other that puts God right at the center of the picture. One is the wisdom of the world that reveals itself in quarreling and self-seeking and division within the body of Christ, and the other is the wisdom that comes from above, wisdom that shows up in a life of peace, humility, mercy, patience, and love. Living a life of love. That's what this book is about from the beginning to the end. But like all good communicators, James has a sense of how his readers might be responding to what he has said up to this point. So James stops at this point in his letter, and he anticipates an, an objection that is likely forming in the minds of a number of his readers. And maybe it's been forming in your mind over the last several weeks as well. In the two chapters that lead up to this section, James has been focusing on things like how we deal with trials and temptation, and how we view widows and orphans, and how we respond to people who are hungry, and people who are rich, and people whose views are different from ours, and people who have wronged us. James has not mentioned the cross once, or forgiveness, or the atonement, or justification. 
well, now wait a minute, James. This is a Christian letter from a Christian leader to Christian believers in the Christian New Testament, and you aren't focusing on the cross or on forgiveness of sins or on salvation? Instead, you're focusing on taking care of people in need and extending a welcome to those who are different from us and showing mercy to those who have hurt us and being careful with our words towards those who disagree with us. This sounds a whole lot more like a Jewish moral code than a Christian doctrinal letter. Aren't you missing something, James? Faith is about forgiveness of sins, not about giving a coat to a widow or a welcome to a stranger. Now, if you came to Christ and to Christianity through the Gospels, then much of what James has written will seem familiar to you. In fact, there are so many times that James either quotes directly or references the teachings of Jesus that some people think the book of James is essentially a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. But if you came to Christ and Christianity through the epistles and the teachings of Paul, which many in the evangelical church have, then what James is writing could sound pretty unfamiliar and even pretty unorthodox. So maybe you found yourselves having the same sort of question as you've been walking your way through the book of James. So let's listen as James stops at this point and addresses this really important potential objection on the part of his hearers. Starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? I've always appreciated the New Living Translation, which I think does an awesome job of staying true to the original versions of the text, but also does an awesome job of interpreting the meanings of those words. And here's how the NLT translates verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? What kind of, what, uh, can that kind of faith save anyone? He goes on in verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good are those words? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. My saying to someone, keep warm and well-fed, without doing anything to actually meet their needs, is saying words that are empty of meaning. Just as my confessing Jesus is Lord, without living a life that demonstrates my allegiance to him as king, is also saying words that are empty of meaning. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. To which James says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Faith, that isn't adequate from a biblical perspective. Even the evil one believes that. What his existence is utterly devoid of is allegiance to, faith in. Then James turns to Scripture, and he points to two different examples that strengthen the point that he's making. The first example is from the life of Abraham. James brings to mind the story of Abraham making or, or trusting God so much that he was 
willing to obey God even when it potentially meant sacrificing his own son. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. I still remember when it was my turn, when my New Testament professor at Gordon-Conwell, Gordon Fee, assigned me and everybody else in our class a paper to address the seeming contradiction between what James writes here in James 2.24 and what Paul wrote in Romans 3.28. I'm going to present them here in the New American Standard Translation, which is the one that follows most closely and literally the Greek wording. So what do you think? A contradiction? Sure seems that way at first. But when you spend just a little bit of time with this, you begin to notice two really important differences in these statements. First, Paul is talking specifically about works of the law, which refers to trying to please God and to be in right relationship with him by satisfying his requirements, by our own effort to keep all of God's commands. And Paul says no one can do that. So what Paul is saying is this, a person is justified, a person is made right with God, completely apart from their earning it through obedience to the law. James, on the other hand, just says works, not works of the law, by which he is referring to good deeds or good works, the, the very sorts of acts of love that this book has been filled with up to this point. Caring for the poor and needy, not showing favoritism, being kind and patient with those with whom we disagree, being merciful to those who've hurt us, and so on. Those are evidence that genuine faith is present, like a pulse that shows that life is present, or smoke that shows that fire is present. Love is the evidence that faith is present. The other important difference is that Paul speaks of faith, and James speaks of faith alone. Now, it does seem at first glance, like James is doing the very thing he's telling us not to do, which is separating out the idea of faith and works and contrasting the two. But he isn't actually doing that. He's using a rhetorical device that was very popular in his day that makes it sound like he's contrasting two opposites, but he's actually talking about things that build on each other. What he's actually saying is this, a person is justified, a person is made right with God by works that prove that faith is present, and not by faith alone. Here's how the New Living Translation captures this verse. And so it happens, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do and not by faith alone. Now James comes to a second example, this one, about the pagan prostitute Rahab in Jericho, whose story about rescuing the Jewish spies is told in Joshua chapter 2. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous 
for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and, and sent them off in a different direction. And then he concludes this aside with this closing comment. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So here's the question that is really at the heart of this passage. What exactly do we mean when we talk about faith? I think we saw as we walked through this passage that thinking of our faith in terms of our relationship with sin and thinking of our faith in terms of our relationship with Savior, with our Savior, are two really different things. Do I have faith that my sin is forgiven or do I have faith in Jesus who forgives my sin and who asks me to give my life back to him in return? As Christians, we have both of these dimensions of our faith, of course, but I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons for the anemia that we see in some parts of the church and one of the biggest contributing factors to its poor reputation in the world is that we think these are the same thing, and they're not. Matthew Bates is one of a growing number of New Testament scholars who have gone back and taken a closer look at the word that is behind this biblical idea of faith and belief. And he says the biblical meaning of faith is both fuller and more beautiful than we have been led to believe. Faith was the word that was regularly used in the ancient world to describe a subject's loyal devotion to a king. He gives the example of Josephus, a Jewish general who lived during the time of Jesus, saying to a rebel leader, repent and believe in me or put your faith in me. Almost exactly the same words that Jesus used with his followers. But what he meant when he said those words was, turn away from your present rebellious course of action and become loyal to me. Give your allegiance to me. In his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, this is how Bates sums up what faith means from a biblical perspective. Faith in Christ is above all allegiance to Jesus the King. Faith is not about our relationship with our sin, Faith is about our relationship with Jesus, who not only pays for our sin on the cross, but who also purchases us on the cross. Our lives now belong to him, and he invites, he expects, he requires of us a response of total and unqualified allegiance to him. And as soon as that's how you understand faith, in this personal and devotional way, then the whole faith works tension completely disappears. Faith in Christ is above all allegiance to Jesus the King, which explains why you see crowns all over the place around here. So think back to those Oreos. Our trust in Jesus as Savior and our allegiance to Jesus as King are not separate things that can be pulled apart from each other. They are a single entity. James is trying to get us to look past the Christian faith as a category, either I am or I'm not, I am forgiven or I'm not, and to look at the Christian faith as a catalyst that drives and shapes and explains every part of my life. Here's an example that I think might be helpful for us. Think about what happens when you join the military. 
When you sign up, you don't have to pay for anything. You don't have to have accomplished anything first. There's nothing that you have to earn ahead of time. All you have to do is take the oath of enlistment and you're in. And from that moment on, they feed you, they clothe you, they house you, and they pay you. Not a dissimilar arrangement to the Christian faith. Here's how the oath goes when you join the U.S. Armed Services. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to the regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so help me God. You are in the military the moment you say that oath. Long before you've ever been given an order by a commanding officer or been shift, shipped off to a hostile context or been required to take up arms and defend your country. So what would that oath mean if you said those words but you carried on living your life just as before without any reference to commanding officers or your duties to your country? You noticed along the way that the oath actually uses the word faith and allegiance interchangeably to describe the commitment that you make to your country and to those who are in authority over you. You are a soldier the moment you take the oath. But from that moment on, every part of your life is to reflect your new faith, your new allegiance. If it doesn't, you are not really a soldier in the U.S. Armed Forces, no matter how short your hair is or what uniform you're wearing. And the same is true when I become a follower of Jesus. In Romans 10, Paul says, this is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. There's the Christian oath of enlistment. Jesus is Lord. What would that oath mean if you said those words, but you carried on living your life just as before, without any reference to the one who is king and Lord, or without being obedient to the royal law of love? Remember, in the New Testament, just like in the army oath of enlistment, faith and allegiance are interchangeable in describing the commitment that we have made. You are a Christian the moment that you profess your faith, but from that moment on, every part of your life should more and more reflect that new faith, that new allegiance to Christ the King. If it doesn't, it's fair for you to ask, and it's fair for others to ask, if you really are a follower of Jesus. We enter into the Christian life by confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in our hearts that he rose from the dead, and we experience it at that moment, forgiveness for our sins and reconciliation with God through no effort of our own, no work of obedience, a sheer and undeserved gift. Glory to God. But what we enter into is not a Christian category, but a Christian life. One marked more and more by our 
complete and unqualified surrender to Jesus as king by a life that should resemble Jesus more and more each day, a life in which our hands and our feet will look more and more like his. That relationship of relinquishment will eventually touch every single part of our lives. The decisions that we make, the way we talk, how we treat others, what we do with our possessions and resources, how we face trials, how we respond when we've been wronged, and so on. Just as James has been pointing out, we've become friends of God. How could that not change us to become more and more like the one that we love? As Catherine of Siena says, he is making of us another himself. I love that. We are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by words of faith alone. Faith in Christ is above all allegiance to Jesus the King. My confidence in Jesus as Savior is the same thing as my commitment to Jesus as Lord, which is the same thing as my surrender to Jesus as King. That's biblical faith. Is that your faith? Is it mine? Have you put your confidence in? Have you made a commitment to? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus as king? Is there evidence of that kind of surrender in your life? Those who know you and love you best, is that the thing that they would say explains your life the way that it is lived? What stands in the way of your full surrender to Jesus as King? Has all this talk about Oreos made you hungry this morning? They're beckoning up here. Well, there is a world around us that hungers to see lives that are explained by our deep allegiance to Jesus and that are a demonstration of his deep love for this world. Give him your full allegiance now, today, right now, in this moment. Turn the whole of it over. Here, Jesus, it's yours. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we exist for you. to live our lives for you, who alone are worthy of them. For your glory, our God and King. We give you again this morning our full allegiance. We resolve to live our lives in such a way that they are an expression of our love to you as we love those that you place around us and as we pour out your love in this world. As our hands and feet Become yours, Lord Jesus. Amen.